everybody to Mesnayagin Iskoyak. My name is Kayla and we are here for another thrilling episode of the Book Women. <laughs> and I am Tanya. And, and I'm Sheila and we're here with our guest uh, Marilyn Dumont. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Marilyn. I've lived in the Edmonton area now for probably, let's see, about 30 years. Uh, I grew up in Sundry, um, Alberta. My parents were from Kikino Metis Settlement and Onion Lake uh, Reserve. And I teach Indigenous Lit and creative writing here at the UVA. And how long have you been writing for? Is it something you've always been doing? No, I wrote as a teenager, but you know, like in a journal. But yeah. the thing is, is that I guess I just thought, well. All, all teenagers do this, this, you know, angst venting in a journal or something. So no one took it seriously and neither did I just put it away. And then probably in my 30s, a friend of mine read a little passage from her journal to me and I thought, Dory, that's amazing. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I started writing it in a journal just because I wanted to someday think, oh, I'll read this to one of my friends or family and they'll be taken on this journey with my writing that's really what my goal was yeah it wasn't to publish it was to write did you keep your your journals from a teen when you were a teenager visit them i you know what about mm, 20 years ago 15 years ago i had boxes of these journals and i thought hmm do i really want to keep these do I really want my family to read these things yeah. that I've gone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said no. And I chucked them. Because I thought, I don't want my family to read this when I'm gone or my friends. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of I edited, I kept some, but mostly threw the lot out because I thought, this is going to be like an albatross, me carrying these around for the rest of my life, and I don't want to do that. So I got rid of most of them. Mm-hmm. I got rid of my angsty teen journals as soon as I could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I think I only have one teen journal that's still kicking around somewhere in our house. And then actually something that I wrote in a little thing when I was probably about maybe eight years old. And I was just so mad at my parents that day, but it's very dramatic. And I was like, oh man. Like reading it as an adult, you're like, how those issues also like when you're a kid and you're like holy yeah but my angsty teen when I keep it around because it's so it's kind of funny to me now almost being like oh I thought I had all the world's problems on me but really they were like very trivial compared yeah. to now and it's just very self-centered but mm-hmm. I keep that one around but I'm sure there's probably some other ones that just got you know, talking about boys and mm-hmm. I was in love with my next door neighbor. So I'm pretty sure I destroyed that one when <laughs> he broke up with me. So mm-hmm. I never kept a journal. Well, I, my very first journal was when I was in about grade five when I was really young and I could, I still have it. But what happened was my sister, my older sister, she took my journal and brought it to her her classroom and read it out loud to all of her friends. And it was so mortifying. I know it was so traumatic. So I I vouched myself never to write my feelings down. And I regret that. I regret that a lot. Do you write your feelings down now? Uh, Sometimes. Sometimes (laughs) when I like blast the music and smash my keyboard, that's how I do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do do you still write in a journal, Marilyn? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I do. Right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. 
Yeah, I still do. I mean, not as much as I used to. Right. Uh, like, before I got this job at the university three years ago, going on four, I wrote a lot more. But just don't. I just don't have the energy or time to do it with the mm-hmm. full-time teaching. Yeah. yeah. It takes a lot out of you, hey? Yeah, it does. A lot. It's the teaching, but it's also the community work. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So for me, I've kind of decided, okay, summertime is when I'm going to be really... You know, hitting my journal and writing rather than trying to do it through the term. Mm-hmm. It's just too much. And I find for me that it's a different kind of time. It's mm-hmm. a different sense of time that you have to be in. You can't be like, oh, I've got a meeting in, in an hour, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really work on this poem. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, <laughs> it doesn't really work like that for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, especially when you are teaching, like I find when Tanya and I teach, sometimes a lot of the emotions that students are feeling, like they start getting reflected on me. And then I don't want that to necessarily come out and be reflective of any writing that I'm doing just because like being a bit of an empath with other students. And I think, and also you get in this weird headspace sometimes, uh, especially around exams or when you have to do all the marking of papers and then... Yeah, I'd rather just take the summer to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, kind of reflect on myself before having to go into the chaos of September, which is coming up soon. Yes. And all the student orientations. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you do, Marilyn, to prepare for writing or just, is there any sort of like rituals read. and things that you do? Yeah. Lots of reading. Um, like if I want to get back into my writing, I'm usually reading a lot first mm-hmm. and then just kind of noodling around my journal with different mm-hmm. things but it's interesting that I did I had an old boyfriend who actually gave me some of my poems that I wrote or some of some of my work I wouldn't really call them poems some of my writing that I did when I was like hmm, mid-teens 13 14 15 16 in there and when he handed them to me, I thought, and this was just about two years ago, he gave them, oh, gave wow. them back to me because I, I forgot all about them. And I thought, oh, do I really want to read these? Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> Anyways, when I opened it up, it was like, yeah, not one of them was like, that's not bad. Pretty good for <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And I was really surprised. It was like, oh, my God. Like, I had something going there. I don't know what it was, but uh-huh. it was yeah. You know, so one of the three or four of them was like, "Hey, hey, yeah, not bad, not bad." (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Instead of being totally horrified, like at all of them, right? Right. So that was good to know. So I know our podcast is about writing, editing, and publishing, and I know that you have many books out. (laughs) Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the the collections that you've written? Yeah, I mean, a really good brown girl, of course, is still around and being published and probably will outlast me. But, you know, it's almost, it's almost if when you look back at your, at your yearbooks, mm-hmm. it, that's what it feels like looking back mm. at a really good brown girl. It sort of looks like maybe just moving in maybe to senior high. Mm-hmm. Finish junior high, move into senior mm-hmm. high. Mm-hmm. And so it's it really, it, when I look back at them, they really do feel like my younger selves. Yeah because the process of putting them together was, well, at different ages, but also, you know, different investigations, different questions that I'm wanting to investigate. So it's, it's almost like, yeah, they're different personalities. So yeah. I don't know how else to talk about them other than a really good brown girl really was kind of an adolescent, a very adolescent kind of, 
coming to terms with being Métis in Alberta and, and what that meant and all of the erasure and um, that kind of thing. So I think that book will be around a lot longer than I am. What did I write after that? I wrote Green Girl Dreams Mountains, um, and that book was written actually when I was doing my master's at UBC. That was really about... I wrote a, a section there on family that I'm probably most proud of in terms of my poetry, because mm -hmm. I think it deals with some really, really hard, uh, difficult issues around family and how to portray them in a way that is honest but is also compassionate. Yeah. That was a really hard uh, section of that book to write, but I think I'm proud of, proud of that section. That tongue belonging was something I wrote in the process of being writer in residence at the University of Alberta, University of Windsor, University of Toronto, and it's there's some poems in there about Windsor, about Toronto, but also about Indigenous women and the strength of Indigenous women. And then Pemmican Eaters uh, took me into some historical research, reading historical memoirs, reading as much as possible of the time period that I was writing so that I could recreate the language of that time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so Pemmican Eaters was a, it was a different process where I did historical research and then I tried to fashion that into some kind of poetry. And so I'm still on that bent. I'm doing research now on Indigenous people in Edmonton and then writing poetry about them. My next my next book will be about Indigenous Edmonton. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really, I mean, I'm quite happy with it. I had quite a breakthrough at Banff when I was there in May, and, you know, I was doing all this research and stuff, and I was starting to get just tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, trying to keep close to the historical accuracy. And then I said, a historian. <laughs> I'm a writer. Yeah. So I can do different things with this material. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, because it really, I really hit a wall. It was like, ugh, can't, 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 can't. And then all of a sudden it was like, yes, I can. Mm -hmm. I can make them superhuman. I can make them amazing people with, you know, horses that fly and, you know, and player pianos that, you know, have murmuration of starlings coming out that turn into dry meat and then fall to the laps of characters' guests. So I can do stuff like that, right? Yeah. So that was a wonderful, wonderful but painful uh, realization. Mm -hmm. For sure. How was your experience at Banff? It sounds like you had oh, a really... Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, going there for, like, I was there for five weeks. It's fantastic. Wow. People think, well, why do you have to go to Banff to write? What do you have to do? It's because basically everything is taken care of there. Mm -hmm. Your food is taken care of. Your room is cleaned every day by somebody else if you want. If you want it cleaned, if you don't, just say, don't clean. Leave me alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing that's good there is that people care if you write. Mm -hmm. Right. Somebody was, oh, so how was your, you know, your writing this morning or what are you working mm -hmm. on? Because in our general life, Nobody asks that. Right. And really, nobody cares if you write or not, right? Mm -hmm. So having that affirmation of a community of people that are focused on their writing, 
is really wonderful to be around. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify for the listeners, that was at uh, the Bounce Center for the Arts? Yeah, Bounce Center okay. for the Arts. And was it a specific like writer program that it's, you were doing? It was the May Writing Studios, okay. where they have resource people. And I, I've done it before. I've been one of the resource people. And so you can choose to meet with those people or not. It's okay. up to you. I met, I only actually got feedback from one of the people that I was, that was there, but, um, you know, they try to bring in a, a variety of writers that may give you some different points of view on things. There were poets there, there were also um, fiction writers. So yeah, it's, it's really great. It's very expensive, that's the only thing, mm -hmm. um, but they do have bursaries. Okay. That's nice. Oh yeah, that's great. Is there a specific eligibility to go? You have to submit a portfolio. Mm -hmm and uh, a number of other things i don't know resume mm -hmm. probably project description yeah that sounds amazing yeah, yeah, yeah and there were about there were about 30 writers so there are about 15 poets and then 15 uh, fiction writers okay very cool yeah, yeah it is really cool we and should do something like this at Lady Crossing. Oh yeah, for yes, sure. Yes, that wow. would be yeah. They have those nice little tents there. I will talk. Just sit there I and look on the river. I will talk to um, Leon this next weekend not this weekend next weekend because i'm there yeah said, surrounded by could we possibly berries. do that yeah as oh. a group of indigenous women writers wouldn't that be great that would be it amazing would. we would love to i mean i think i would be also down for shooting a podcast episode out yeah, there for sure yes yeah In i love that trapper idea okay, let's do that yes. yeah do you guys want to work on that together as a project we can put money yes, yes i sure. can start writing Absolutely. up we can yeah, we're putting yeah. it out there into the, we are. Into the people are going to know. Gonna we know. said that we would want to do this, but yeah. 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 No, I love that. Miti Crossing is so beautiful. It Taylor is. I took us there last year, and it was so awesome. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, well, my family is kind of from up in that area, so Ooh. every year I try and go up there at least once, and we start outside of Redwater, and we take the old Victoria Trail. We printed off, like, the map that they have. Mm -hmm. So we go up there, me and my partner, and we just kind of do a day of, like, mm -hmm. going to all the sites. And we usually go to the graveyards where my ancestors are buried. Yeah, and mine too. Yeah, so we go up there. We go to the old... Uh, we love driving up to the old cemetery on the very top of the hill because yeah. it's just so fun to drive up there. But it's also really interesting because only a few of the actual gravestones are there. Right. But you can see where the graves are because it's indented because mm -hmm. old graves collapse mm -hmm. so just to think about like who and it's such like a peaceful place and it's like right above the north saskatchewan mm. and yeah. it's it's really beautiful so i love going up there and i like taking people up there because mm -hmm. it's not too far from edmonton and it's just it's a nice trip to do just beautiful. and if you have time say. stop at the metis crossing stay overnight they have a really nice camp campground yeah. Well, you know, now with that new center, they'll have a they'll have a classroom in there. Oh, wow. exciting! That could be used just for, you know, sharing. Yeah. 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 Performance, if you want, if people wanted to perform their work at the end of a workshop or whatever. Yeah. Right. Anyways, something to think about. Yes, Definitely. exactly. Something to do. Something yeah. to do. Yeah. There you something go. to do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Done. Okay. Done. Okay. So, could okay. you go ahead? Okay. Well, I mean, we're both just burning with questions now. I know. I know. Um, you were talking about a little bit about a kind of responsibility or like accountability to your family in your writing. And I know we had, well, Tanya and I had the privilege of coming out to Lac St. Anne and meeting a few of your family members. Mm -hmm. um, how does kind of your family or like the land that you're from influence your writing or how does it kind of go with your writing or does it? It does. I mean, the pemmican eaters and then, well, I mean, all of it, all of it does. Yeah. Because um, I'm usually writing about 
place and people and time periods. Mm-hmm. So I sort of feel like it's all connected in some way. I mean, I'm, I knew less at an earlier age about, about my ancestry in this area. Mm-hmm. So it just seems to get deeper and deeper and kind of more, more interesting mm-hmm. and a lot more varied than yeah. what I thought it would have been. You know, so, yeah, so quite an interesting interesting process, getting actually closer to to the land and to the history. Yeah. Is your family fairly receptive to your writing? They are. Yeah. They are now. Now. <laughs> That's good now. <laughs> the key word in that sentence. <laughs> yeah. They weren't at first. Yeah. I know that they were, they had problems with a really good brown girl, mm. published in 96, and, and I heard some, to the great friend. Yeah. Bad stuff about what family, family said about my book. But now they're all happy. Yeah. They're all very yeah. pleased and everything. But but I think that's that's definitely a risk that writers take, mm-hmm. is that if you are going to write, write about yourself, very likely it will include your family, and people have to decide. But I think that's that's one of the things that writers have to decide. Mm-hmm. How, are, how, how will you handle it? Mm-hmm. I also had an aunt who contacted me and said, you know, that's, that's not how it was. I said, well... I have my understanding of it, and you have yours, but it ain't changing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's some very good advice, too, um, especially for writers who are going to tell their own story, mm-hmm. that, you know, we're accountable to our family, but we're also accountable, like, to ourselves, and we have yes. to follow our truths when we're mm-hmm. saying, when we're telling our stories, but just to know that families, they're either going to love it or, you know, they're mm-hmm. going to have something to say, and... Family always has something to say. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's always that one auntie, too, that's like, mm-hmm. you can't please. You shit, yeah. yeah, that's true. And the thing is, is that people don't realize, like, everybody wants to write a book, but nobody knows that it's actually digging trenches. And then it's really hard work, like emotionally hard work, and also just sitting and putting in the time. It's mm-hmm. tedious, especially when it comes to editing process. So I would say that, People always say, oh, I want to write a book. I'll say, okay, are you planning to spend a year doing this? Just even like on a good first draft. If you aren't, you may not get your book written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because it is. It's just hard slogging. And in some ways, I feel sorry for fiction writers because, man, is there ever a lot of hard slogging if you're a fiction writer. Yeah. Oh, man, the, the amount of words and time you put in. I just can't believe it. Yeah. It is. It's just, it's really hard work. The, the number of people who have said to me, oh, I want to I, I write a poetry book. Who do you read? They don't read poetry. Mm. Like, oh, so who's going to read you if you don't read poetry? <laughs> right. But it's, but it's true. Yeah. Like, many, many people want to write a book because I've been, and I've had this experience over and over and over as the writer in residence. So many people want to write books. Okay, you're willing to put in the work? No, I just want to. I just want to have it. <laughs> they don't want to actually put in the work, but uh-huh. they want to publish something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You and know. the publishing process is huge too. Like it's so many different stages. It's different stages, and the whole publishing industry has changed. I mean, when I when I published a really good brown girl, there were many independent publishers in Canada, which has now been reduced to few being bought up by conglomerates and then the people who publish poetry don't make a profit if they break even they're happy 
if you sell 500 books of poetry in Canada, that's a big deal, then publishers are happy. So the writing and publishing of poetry is just becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. But, you know, the thing is, in, in terms of Indigenous lit right now, it's kind of, it's got cachet. So there's books being published that probably shouldn't be published, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I've read some of those. Yeah, just really, it's just sort of thing, wow, I wish you would have had a better editor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the editor can send people back and say, listen, you need to re reinvest in this because it's not saying anything new. There's new, not the language isn't challenging. Yeah, the whole the whole world of publishing has changed dramatically, and it's also moved from where the uh, publisher was most in- instrumental in the distribution and publicity, and now it's gone to the writer. They want you to have Twitter and Facebook accounts. Mm-hmm. Like publishers want writers to have those because you are the ones basically promoting your work. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas before. The publisher did all the work, right? Right. As if you don't have enough to do, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. But also, distribution is huge. Like, the other thing about writing books is that people can write a book, but it'll be a doorstop unless it's distributed, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to find a good distributor. And the thing is, publishers don't always have good distributors. So you have to also find a publisher that is very active in distributing books. Like... Brick Books, I was, it was a godsend. It was a gift for me to publish first with Brick Books because they promote, 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 and they promoted me. Mm-hmm. They put me, they did a book tour when I, in 96, 97. Poetry publishers do not do book tours anymore. Mm-hmm. You'd be very surprised. It's very rare because they just have, they don't have the money for it. So, yeah, publishing is, is really, it's really changed. It's nice to see that there are some more Indigenous publishers and that publishers are also now taking the idea of Aboriginal editors a little bit more seriously um, than they were before. Five, ten years ago, they were not interested in, in Aboriginal editors. Mm-hmm. I know that that's another... That's a question that I actually wanted to ask you because I know that you've, in the books that you published, I think... Was it Pemmican Eaters that you published with um, an Indigenous publishing house? No, nope. that, that one is ECW. I published uh, That Tongue Belonging with Kegadon's Press, Okay. an Indigenous press, yeah. Did you notice any difference working with an Indigenous press versus a non-Indigenous press? Well, what's noticeable is the size of the press rather than whether they're Indigenous or not. I mean, the size of the press, uh, they're always struggling and just they're hand to mouth. They have no money for extra anything unless they apply for money. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, small, stru- small publishers are basically, they're like home-based businesses, basically. Mm-hmm. And so are many of our literary journals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know we are talking a, a lot about a really good brown girl, and I know that that's actually made the, comp- the comprehensive exam list for the PhD mm-hmm. students. Are you so reading it yet? I've already... Oh, okay. Long ago. You're like, I already <laughs> read that. Peoples and Plays was my favorite list. So that what list are you on now, just out of curiosity? Which one did you leave to the very end? <laughs> Governance. Of that first where is the worst one, but that's <laughs> another story. I guess my, my question is, like, how does it feel as, as a writer and an author, like, Having other people read and go through your book and pull out all these, like, I don't know, almost like, I don't want to say nitpicking, but looking and analyzing your book, how does that feel? Because for me, I feel like that'd be really awkward. It is awkward, and I, 
I prefer not to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I, I, it's interesting because it's happened ever since it was published. Yeah. You know, like academics are looking at the yeah. work and they're always, you know, saying stuff. Some of it's, you know, pretty spot on and sound and some of it's kind of ridiculous. So I don't listen to it anymore, yeah. basically. I mean, it, when I stopped listening to it was this, around this story. What happened is that in the front of the book, there's a picture of me and my mother, and it was taken by a street photographer. So he just snapped the picture. I don't think he had any, you know, any real plans for the, for the photo. Well, anyway, somebody had some wrote this argument that because they couldn't see our feet in the photograph, my mother and my feet, that somehow we were, this represented our dislocation from the land. It was, I was like, okay, that's really pushing it. So, I, so at that point, I thought, I'm not reading any more of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the better, protect your spirit. Yeah, right. Yeah. When people just get way too into your into it. You're like, I didn't mean that. No, at I didn't. All. I didn't like, mean that at all. Yeah. No. Well, I mean. It's a photograph. I didn't even take it. Mm-hmm. And the photograph yeah. was taken that split second. Yeah. I don't think the guy decided at that point, oh, I'm going to cut their feet off so it will make them look dislocated from the lab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I kind of stopped reading it. But, you know, in some ways it doesn't really matter what other people think. Mm-hmm. In many ways it doesn't. I mean, I wrote it. It's there. It's that time and period, and it's not going to please everybody. And no, it wasn't your experience, but it was mine. That's the way I look at it. I can't write a book for other, you know, other people. They have to take what they can from it and leave the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, my experience is quite different from other people's. Yeah. Do you um, teach your own books in, uh, oh God, in your no. classes? No. <laughs> this is not. always a question that well, comes up for us. Like when we do our syllabus, we're like, yeah. do we have them read something that we wrote? Do we have them listen to it? Because this year we actually are including podcasts and just like alternative forms of learning or like um, supplementary to readings. And yeah. I'm just like, and that was one of the questions Tanya had, like, do they listen to us talking in a podcast? I was like, I don't know if students want to hear us that many hours. There's a few, like, we, we do have them read a journal article that we wrote many years ago and but it's more of like we don't even like the articles so mm-hmm. we want to hear how much they don't like the articles so. yeah and it's fun for them to poke at us a little yeah. bit so we save it till the end so they're comfortable with us and they can just give us all the yeah yeah they tell us how oh, shitty man. our article is and we just sit there and take it <laughs> oh man no it just it, it's just not it's not a fair setup yeah no. to have your own books there i mean well, you know why. I mean, it just doesn't make any yeah. sense. Yeah, it's an extreme power dynamic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. lots of profs do it. They assign their own books that they've written. I mean, I could understand if there's only one book in a particular subject, they're just the mm. one, but yeah. otherwise, I don't know. I think. It's I mean, it might fun. be different if you were, editor, you were an editor mm-hmm. of a book. Sure. You know, that's, that's a little bit more removed so that you could test people on maybe another writer that's in the collection mm-hmm. but yeah what, test them on your own work i don't so how would you python-ish yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially if you don't <laughs> cite it properly or yeah i'm here for an argument yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> no i won't <laughs> i won't argue 
Um, So I was just wondering, thinking about this, how do you approach teaching creative writing for other people? Mostly, it's really through a process of not so much teaching it as making a space available for reading of others, discussion of their work, looking at technique, and also just being really aware of a person's kind of style or, you know, content, interest, and just like hands-off in that area. Mm -hmm. Just hands-off, let them explore, discover, come to their own voice, not my voice, their voice. I think it has a lot to do with, I think, humility, but I also think it has to do with respecting, respecting other people and their own experience. So for the creative writing course here at the university that you teach, is it one where students have to submit a portfolio before? Is it that course? Okay. No, no. Well, well, we stopped doing that. We don't oh, have portfolios anymore okay. in the right program, but they used to have portfolios. Okay. I will sometimes uh, ask for a writing sample if okay. somebody has not done any creative writing courses, mm. but not always. Have you ever ventured, Marilyn, into audiobook versions of your books? Actually, no, I haven't, but, well, I've been recorded a fair amount of time, but there's no kind of complete audiobook. It's funny, because I'm interested in sound, and so I'm surprised that I haven't done this, but I've often thought about it, just haven't had the time, and maybe just not as comfortable with the medium. But I, I really like it when there's kind of, I can work with a musician, and there's been a couple times where I've done that one with Chris Dirksen, which was fantastic, and another group of francophone writers at the festival in um, Trois-Rivières. They had a kind of a setup with uh, a real, like a real xylophone Mm -hmm. um, and drums and something else, I can't remember. But yeah, it was was great. I loved it. But I don't know. I just have, it's just not something I've organized or put enough effort into. So what are you looking into for sound? I just, I mean, sound, the reason I, I say I'm interested in sound is because poetry has so much to do with sound, mm-hmm. but a lot of people just overlook that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it stems back to, you know, like to the origins of poetry, which were, you know, like spoken word, it's oral performance, it's, you know, the bards, it's all of, all of those things where, where it was music, speaking was music. That's that's why I'm interested in sound. I mean, I, I, one of the things I do teach is that, you know, it's not only the, the sense of the word, but the sound of the word that you're after mm. in the process of putting a poem together. Because basically you're, you're composing music mm-hmm. out of some signifiers that mean something, but you are creating a musical score. Mm-hmm. And I don't do that. I don't have a background in music or anything. It's just a matter of, you know, uh, trial and error, like I, you know, write something uh, that need, where it needs to change. I try another word. Oh, that doesn't quite work. Oh, I change the whole line. Oh, that doesn't quite work. Oh, I change the whole stanza. That doesn't quite work. Oh, I change the whole poem. Oh, I'm getting closer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's all. It's for me. I'm I'm working towards melody as much as uh, sense. I feel like I just saw something of you working with like a local group from Edmonton or you're reading poetry yeah yeah it, what are they called ne- Nehiawak Nehiawak yeah and I saw that and I was like oh that's because they're yeah what style of music do they do again they're not it's kind of like avant-garde yeah it's it's it's, it's interesting it's experimental yeah 
Yeah, I saw uh, like a YouTube video and I was like, oh, that's really cool. It was fun. It was really fun. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of work because I just oh, yeah. the way they shot that was crazy. Oh, really? Yeah, because what happened is that they recorded me. How the hell did they do this again? They recorded my voice and then they shot the video and then they had to match the, try to match the two up mm-hmm. oh. with me sitting there mouthing my previous recording. So we did that. We took that shot 20 times. <laughs> it was crazy the way it was shot. Yeah. yeah. But because it was all, it was, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of put together after, as an afterthought. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it ended up working and, and Connor did a fantastic job. Oh, Connor, yeah. Connor McNally. Yes. Yeah. He did an amazing job. Yeah, that he's great. really hard to do. Yes. That's why we, I was like, oh, God, will we ever finish this thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like to, con- you know what? I like to credit Connor for being one of the reasons that we're sitting here doing this book. This yeah. Oh, he's actually God. the reason why, yeah. we, why we created a podcast. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. cool. it was, a, honestly, it was originally supposed to be a video series, and I was supposed to interview 10 authors, um, and then publish the videos about it. And I wanted to hire an indigenous filmmaker. Right. And I asked, I don't know, I asked around, and obviously Connor's name came up, and I met with Connor for a coffee, and he basically told me, you can't afford me for this price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this yeah, is way too, oh, yeah. way too little money for me to do this, and that's fair, and I'm glad that he did that. Because making so. videos is so expensive, but also, mm-hmm. like, Connor's done so much work mm-hmm. and like he deserves to be paid like any indigenous person mm-hmm. he deserves yeah, to be course. paid fairly mm-hmm. and podcasting like a video series would have been great but I think podcasting has turned out to be something that's just um it seems like a better personal, medium for yeah it. yeah yep. yeah it's been great I worked in video production and it is a tremendous amount of work oh yeah for sure I spent a year on on three 20 minute sections is so much work, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's so expensive. It used to yeah. be a lot more expensive because people had to go into a studio, mm-hmm. a post-production studio to get it done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those things cost, cost, used to cost like so much money. Yeah. yeah. But now people can pretty much do it themselves with all that computer yeah. technology. But nowadays I did it, man, we used to have to rent those post-production places and they were like unbelievably expensive yeah mm-hmm. yeah i find in video to be way more intimidating than sound i don't know like i do not want to watch the it's hard for me to listen to the weird things that i do with my voice over and over again but then to watch me act really weird at the same time <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, like, it's like oh no I felt weird doing that and clearly I am weird yeah just painful it's like when you're at a conference or doing anything and somebody captures a photo of you and you don't oh. know that it's happening you're like why do I look so angry right now yeah. or like I must be really bored like yeah, something's right. happening why am I rolling my eyes yeah, yeah. exactly and you're like oh no <laughs> Especially when that ends up on like 
Twitter or something like that. And they're like, Kayla's at this conference. And it's a photo of me rolling my eyes or just looking angry. I'm like, why would you choose to put that <laughs> one up know. there? Like, I'm sure that I took, I'm sure my face did not look like that for the whole entire hour. Like, <laughs> like I hope it not. did, then something is wrong. <laughs> you should have stopped this conversation immediately. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know. So if you do an audio recording, do you think you would want to read it or would you get somebody to read one of your books? No, I'd, re- I'd read it. Yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd prefer to read it, I think, Yeah. have someone else read it. It's so strange to have someone else read my work. It's like, oh, that's not my poem. It's just mm-hmm. because, because the sound and sense yeah. are so connected, Yeah. it's really hard to have someone else read it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more, like... It's more personal when the author is actually reading it because that's their words, their thoughts. So, yeah. but I have heard audiobooks that are like it's just a random person reading it, and oh, it's weird. Yeah, it's not as good. It almost seems no. monotone, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A big audio. I'm an audio learner. <laughs> that's what I learn oh, the most, okay. which makes me the worst librarian ever. But yeah, I've, I've listened to a lot of audiobooks, and some of them are terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like a robot listening. You're listening to a robot, and they have no emotions or whatever. And uh-huh. Yeah. Which would, would not be good for your books. No. Mm-hmm. Right. But then there's some audiobooks where you're listening to it, and you're like, I didn't know that that person's name was pronounced that way. <laughs> or you think yeah, that somebody right. reads with, like, an, like, somebody speaks with an accent or something like that, and then it just... For me, then it just destroys the whole book. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you come up with so many things in your mind, and... I remember when they did the Hobbit movies because I'm a huge like Tolkien fan and um, I think Smog is a male and I was like no Smog is a female like that's always how I read the dragon was being oh. a female not a male so when they did the in the movie adaptation the dragon was a male I'm like this is completely wrong because that female <laughs> on that pile of gold that's a dragon like that dragon is a girl like mm-hmm. I had like and then my husband's like it's a dragon it can be whatever it wants to be but the whole time watching the movie just could not get past that so I think yeah I just wanted to go back to this work in progress about Indigenous Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if there's anything in your process of like preparing to write it or writing and researching, what has surprised you about Indigenous Edmonton? I don't know if it's... It hasn't been really surprise. I don't. Yeah, I can't say it's or, been a surprise. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not surprised that, you know, Indigenous people were part of the thriving, stratified socially stratified community that was here. Right. You know, right from the very beginning. So, no, it doesn't surprise me, actually. I mean, I... No. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. No surprises. Well, is there anything that you would want people to know about Indigenous Edmonton? Well, some of the the things I find really interesting, um, Victoria uh, Belcourt-Callahoo, she was one of the first people to have a player piano. In this area, and they were—I mean, they were—they were entrepreneurs. Her and her husband were mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. They had a hotel, they had a pool hall, they had a farm, you know. Yeah, and she had this house, with a player piano in it, and I was like, "Wow, really?" Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was just a, it really, you know, piqued my imagination. Thinking, "Wow, like, what did she play on that player piano, and who was there, and you know, that kind of thing." So. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are, are, I find, very interesting. But I don't know if it's so much surprising. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think your your book will be a good medium for some people who just want to learn more about like the indigenous history of Edmonton, but it's a great like form that's not, you know, going to the museum or reading a history mm-hmm. book that's super academic in mm-hmm. con- in content cuz I mean, I'll read those books if I'm taking a history course, but mm-hmm. I would rather you know, read something that's a little bit lighter or just not so intense more accessible. yeah yeah more accessible, more accessible right because mm-hmm. we we're we we're having a conversation about like the way that academics write and how it's not accessible for everybody and i think even the way academics speak is not mm-hmm. accessible and there's sometimes that it goes over my head or when we were talking about overthinking things where i'm like no you're really reading into that like mm-hmm. yeah like community members including myself are just it's not so complex yeah so yeah and I'm very excited to read your book because I love history, so I cannot wait. about that player piano. I don't know why, but in my head, just because ghosts are I, ghosts are a part of my life, and I just imagine this player piano just starting to play randomly all the time. Uh, yeah. It would scare the shit out of me. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes, like, yeah, absolutely. Like when the shower starts, but it's a yeah. player piano playing. Mm-hmm. I don't know why my mind went that way, but it did. Marilyn, I... We have, I guess, two final questions to ask. Oh, okay. The first question is, would you have any advice for people working in the editing and publishing industry on how to work respectfully with Indigenous peoples? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I, I don't think I can have any kind of umbrella statement. It really depends on the on the group, right? Mm-hmm. And the cultural group that the person is they're writing about. Uh, I think it really has a lot to do with that. Yeah. You know, what are their protocols? What are you know? What's their territory? Or what's their conflict with another indigenous group that is also claiming that territory? Mm-hmm. You know, like they have to be mindful of these kinds of things. And so, I guess I would say, go and do the research. Go and talk to indigenous people in the area where this book is set or somebody that has some kind of information about it that's indigenous (laughs) and that is indigenous in terms of being in the community you know because people can get indigenous people and they don't have any connection to the community it doesn't help it doesn't help right so then i guess the last question what or is do you have any advice for any indigenous folks who are wanting to get into the publishing editing and writing of indigenous stories and storytelling Read. Read, 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 read as much as possible, read widely, read the, you know, contemporary as well as as the older work. Um, Because what's happening now is that people are more focused on contemporary work, Mm -hmm. and they forget about people like Jeanette Armstrong, Mm -hmm. um, Lee Miracle, Maria Campbell. These people (laughs) cut a wide swath for us. And um, I just want them to be acknowledged. But right now, the, the focus is really on the more contemporary stuff, mm-hmm. and which is great. But I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that there are people who allowed me to be able to publish my work yeah. and get it out there. Can't lose sight of the Métis aunties. No, I mean, yes, absolutely right. not. Oh, my God, no. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, I, I remember, like, going... Jeanette Armstrong has been a really... She's been a real role model for me as someone who is really um, very strongly connected to her community and has been someone who 
basically, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a real model for me of how to carry myself, how to be in my own community, um, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So read and get yourself a mentor if you yeah, can. Yeah, read as much yeah. as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's really good advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Read poetry if you want to write poetry. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's good. No, <laughs> right? very good advice. So, unless we have any other burning, pressing questions, does anyone? No. Well, thank you very much mm-hmm. for being here, Marilyn. We're very excited yeah. to have you on as our last guest of Miss Nyga and Isquiak, Book Women for season the one. year season one Fantastic. season one we'll have one more episode about our favorite moments of the year and just reflecting back so keep your ears open for that one and your eyes watching our twitter <laughs> and facebook and just about everything else that we have also look forward for some exciting things that we will be doing in the fall that we'll talk about later and some possible merch collaborations that will be coming out eventually so yeah (laughs) if we ever get this graphics thing down like that's another thing um yeah so i guess metis auntie's out for the day and have a great whatever your day is your afternoon morning evening whenever you're listening to this (laughs) 